Welcome to Brainstorm, Decoding Depression, where we will dig into discussions about mood disorders. We are here to change the way we think and talk about depression in an accessible, approachable way with a leading expert in the field. No topic is off limits. Coming to you from Dallas, Texas, this is Brainstorm. The opinions expressed are only our own and do not reflect those of UT Southwestern, the O'Donnell Brain Institute, the UT system, or the state. Hello, and welcome back to Brainstorm, Decoding Depression. I'm Katherine Forbes, and thanks for listening. Last episode, we talked about our research into biosignatures for depression and how we can use brain and blood markers to make our way to more accurate diagnoses and more personalized, precise treatment. Today, we'll be talking about youth suicide prevention and school-based programs. If you were here with us for our debut episode, we discussed youth depression. Now, we'll dig a little deeper into this topic with a focus on what can be done to support healthier, more resilient youth and young adults. I'm here with Dr. Maduker Trivedi, founding director of the CDRC, and Dr. Jennifer Hughes. Dr. Hughes is an associate professor and licensed psychologist with us at the CDRC. She's head of the CDRC's Risk and Resilience Network, which she is going to tell us about today. So let's go ahead and dive in. Dr. Hughes, thank you for joining. I think a lot of people believe suicide rates are increasing. That's generally understood. They might say mostly due to the effects of the pandemic. Is that true? What do suicide rates currently look like in America? I would say it's a little too early for us to attribute the rates we're seeing to the pandemic, but I do think that's important data we need to continue to collect. But when you're thinking specifically about youth suicide, we actually do know that we have seen deaths by suicide in individuals ages 10 to 24 increase. In fact, between 2007 and 2017, we saw a 56% increase in the rate of deaths by suicide in that age group. And then our most recent youth risk behavior survey in 2017 Students were reporting in the past year having suicidal ideation, about 17%, and about 7% reported having made a suicide attempt in the last year. And so this is definitely a major public health problem. And one place that we think we can make an impact on this problem is by going into schools. And before we get into the school aspect of it, what prevention efforts are in place for youth suicide? So there's a whole spectrum of prevention. One is called universal prevention, and that's what we're actually doing in the schools. That's where you really cast a wide net in your prevention efforts to impact people for which suicide is not even really a problem, right? It's sort of like catching the train before it leaves the station. But there's also other efforts to help youth who are already depressed and having suicidal ideation or just experiencing suicidal ideation related to something else going on in their world. Uh, certainly there's mental health treatment uh, through specialty care and psychiatry and psychology for these youth, um, inpatient services, outpatient care, Research and outpatient interventions for youth suicide at this point includes um, the most effective treatment is dialectical behavior therapy, or DBT. That's really for youth who have a history of multiple suicide attempts and self-harm behavior. It's a pretty intensive treatment that lasts about six months, but it has been shown to reduce future suicidal behavior and self-harm. And that's really important. We know one of the biggest risk factors for a future suicide attempt is having made a past attempt. And so um, I think it's important to have efforts across the spectrum. If we can keep someone from ever going down that trajectory, it's really helpful. And if they are on that trajectory, there are some treatments we do have that show promise. And I know we're focusing on school interventions. Is that because schools are usually a child's first exposure to mental health resources? 
Yeah, school is actually a really great place to insert some of these mental health prevention efforts. We certainly know school is not just for that, and there's a lot of things that schools have to address. But schools recently have really moved toward having social-emotional learning programs, understanding that the whole child needs to be addressed in order to have strong academic outcomes as well. And depression and suicide prevention efforts can fit right into that. And so we decided to partner with schools to try to do some of this universal prevention. We will get into this, Jenny, later in terms of the details of this, but can you begin to give us some sense on how we can totally change this? Because we have been focusing on this as a society for the last 25 years as only for those in crisis. And I think your work is beginning to clearly show us that we can't not afford to wait until there is a crisis. We have to do something very early. Right. So give us a sense of if we as a culture want to change suicides in teens, how should we start? I, I think school is a great place to start because that's where so many teens spend their time. I think big picture, it's really we're finding more and more about strengthening people's connections making them feel connected to their communities, to their families. And we know that having a sense of belonging is really important when it comes to preventing suicide. And so many of the programs we put into place for youth really focus on strengthening their relationships with peers, strengthening their relationships with their teachers and their school communities, but also strengthening relationships within the family and helping parents really feel empowered to almost serve as a seatbelt against that sort of suicidal ideation or behavior when it comes. I like to think of it as that public health model, um, really helping families to approach problems and stress that happens so that the youth really does feel like their parent is that seatbelt across that helps, you know, it helps stop things when it feels out of control or that helps give them ideas for what to do if they're in a lot of pain or have something that they just don't know how to handle. And I think your example of seatbelt is fantastic because it gives us some sense of why we shouldn't only focus on kids who have a problem, but rather all the full, full spectrum of kids in a school. Yeah, so I mean, as I mentioned, we know once kids already have problems, they're sort of on, on a couple of different trajectories that are possible from there. But um, we know that any time a youth spends depressed or, or really suicidal, it's time that they're not doing other things that are really important to their development. Things like learning in school, making friends, trying to date a little bit and have some relationships, all of those kind of launching things that we want teenagers to do. We know if they're struggling with anxiety, depression, suicidal thinking, they're not spending time focused on those things. We certainly have school-based mental health efforts in many of our schools now where there will be school counselors on site or um, psychiatry access uh, through the schools. And those programs really do help us reach a lot of students who are already having difficulties. But man, if we can prevent that, then again, we keep them developmentally where they need to be going and focused on that. And as you know, many uh, mental illnesses begin before the age of 18. And so again, if we can really focus on this age group and have strong prevention efforts, we may be preventing a lifetime of difficulty for these people. What is most frustrating to me, and maybe give you a sense on that, is that we end up focusing on kids who have a problem, which we should. But I think in order for us to really make an impact, we cannot wait until somebody sort of tells us they have a problem. We have to start earlier. And so maybe a little thought about how we do that. And we'll go into our program, but why even approach the entire classroom rather than only those kids who have a problem? Right. Well, 
my mom is a retired teacher, and I know that I often would hear about those kids that were causing difficulties in the classroom. Those were the ones she was typically worried about. Um, so the kids that typically get the services there are the ones who act out more um, or who really sort of show that they're having a hard time. And usually that's by doing things that really kind of annoy the rest of the class or the teacher. What goes under the radar oftentimes are those more quiet kids who perhaps are withdrawn and are really struggling with depression or suicidal thinking. And so those kids get missed oftentimes by our current efforts to find folks that need help. Most of our schools don't do screening at this point, unfortunately, and there's a lot of reasons for that we could go into, but it really creates a situation where only the squeaky wheels get attention. And yes, those are certainly students that need help, but there are a lot of other students who may also need help. And that's why universal prevention is so fantastic because it really lets you impact the whole group of students whether you know their risk status or not, whether you know they're having problems or not. And um, hopefully by inserting some skills and some sense of community and some of the other things we try to do with our programming, that's gonna help everybody. And again, prevent kids from ever going down that pathway that's more difficult and or help us recognize some of those kids who may be sort of secretly struggling and get them into the services they need. And as you know, early recognition, early detection, early treatment can make a big difference. So to clarify, there are interventions and there are prevention measures and you both seem very focused on or focused and passionate about prevention measures, which the CDRC has spoken a lot about the importance of being proactive. And I know that this is a lot of work that you focus within a branch of the CDRC called the Risk and Resilience Network. So if y'all could tell us about how you even came together on these efforts and what the RRN does. Well, the RRN began back in 2016, roughly. Dr. Trevetti recruited me to come work at the center. And I always joke that it began with me and him in a car, <laughs> just driving from school to school in the Metroplex of Dallas and, um, you know, meeting with different school leadership, really trying to understand what they were seeing in their schools when it came to depression and suicide and what they wanted to see done differently because the Risk and Resilience Network is really a community partnership where we partner with schools and youth-focused community organizations to develop prevention and intervention programming. And we really want to do that in collaboration with our school partners. And so early meetings were just a lot of talking and listening. And, um, and then from there, we got the real sense that this sort of universal prevention approach could make a difference. And that fit with our perspective as well, given what we were trying to do at the CDRC. And so, yeah, that's, that's the origin. And schools are, by design, very focused on their ed kids' education. So therefore, for them to take on something new is always a significant challenge mm -hmm. and I think that the, what in our listening tour we heard was they want to do something new but they, they were still struggling to figure out what that is and that is where our partnership came in. And you found schools and teachers to be very supportive and receptive and interested what were some of the responses that you Yes, saw? I mean, I, I will say that, I, again, schools have shifted to have this social-emotional learning focus, but overall, there hasn't been a lot of guidance in the best ways to do that, and I think that was where our partnership really created a new opportunity for schools to learn a bit more about the prevention work that had been done, and then for us to really support 
evidence-based practices in the schools and really thinking about if we're going to collaborate to develop some new programs, how can we also develop metrics and outcomes to track to make sure those programs are making a difference in these schools and also to make sure they're making a difference in the ways that are important to our school partners. And so that was where a lot of that listening took place too, was what are the things you would want to look at to know that a program is helping your students or is supporting your teachers and doing their work better. And so they were very receptive and I will say we saw varying states of, of existing programming. Um, you know, some most had some sort of suicide prevention efforts that they were doing, but in some schools that was simply like a PowerPoint presentation that was presented to kids. Um, for some, it would be like an assembly, and a few had some programs like question, persuade, refer, or mental health first aid, which mm -hmm. are gatekeeper programs. We can speak about those later. Um, or uh, signs of suicide, SOS program. But it was very few that were using some of the more evidence-based programs. A lot of these programs focus on either the adults in the, t in the teen's life or they focus on giving them a didactic lecture. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we know that neither of those two really work. They get what lectures. we have to do <laughs> is to provide the teens with the tools they need when they are running into these difficulties, not just have a lecture at them. And I think that is where we really focused our attention and, and Jenny can tell us about the program we're doing. So when you were doing this, all of this research into the best ways to develop these skills in young adults, what did you find? So as we stopped to look at the literature, we really felt ourselves drawn to a program that came out of Europe. It's called YAM, which stands for Youth Aware of Mental Health. And that was a universal prevention program that had really demonstrated an impact on reducing future suicide attempts, reducing severe suicidal ideation, and reducing new depressive symptoms in youth who received the program. So there was a large study in Europe called the Saving and Empowering Young Lives in Europe study, or the Saley study. And they had randomized schools to a couple of different sort of treatment or intervention options. One was the YAM program. One was that question, persuade, refer, which is a gatekeeper program that really educates teachers and coaches on the signs of suicide. We know those kind of programs help adults feel more comfortable with these conversations, but it doesn't really seem like they have a downstream impact on actually changing the behavior of interest. Other schools were randomized to do professional screening and connect kids to care. And then there were some control condition schools that just hung up some posters related to mental health. And at the 12-month follow-up, or one year after they had delivered these interventions in the various schools, and again, this was a randomized study, the schools who received YAM, really, those students benefited from YAM in a profound way. And so we chose YAM to be the cornerstone program of the Risk and Resilience Network, and that has been the first program that we delivered in schools. We implemented it in uh, 30 schools over the first three years, and now we're kind of transitioning to a new model where we're training people in schools to deliver the program. Can you, if I am a school sta a staff or superintendent and I say, yes, let's do this, what does it entail as in, in terms of our students? What does, do the students get in this program? And can you describe the program itself? Yeah, so I would say what makes YAM unique is that it is very youth focused. So the students themselves are taught about mental health, so they're given a common language about mental health. They are also taught how to support one another and how to look for the signs of depression or problems both within themselves and within their friends. By no means are we teaching them to be each other's therapists or anything like that, but we are giving them the opportunity to practice having those hard conversations about bringing up 
if they notice someone's having a hard time and then helping get that friend to an adult or and that could be the school counselor but that could also be you know the parent of another friend or an aunt or uncle and so the program really has this focus on mental health literacy help seeking behavior stigma reduction and getting kids to resources that already do exist out there for them to help uh, get the help that they need Functionally, what it looks like is uh, five sessions in the classroom. Those sessions are delivered over three weeks, and the first session is very didactic in nature. It's delivered with like a PowerPoint presentation, but very interactive where students are encouraged to participate and sort of talk about the different themes of the program. And those themes are what is mental health, tips for feeling better, stress and crisis, depression and suicide, helping a friend in need, and then getting to help that you need, so resources. But the very cool part of this program is sessions two through four, and those are really interactive. So session two is done with dilemma cards where students are put into small groups, and they have the chance to just talk about stresses that they've experienced and how they would feel, what they would think, and what they would do in those situations. This really fosters that kind of perspective taking and empathy and connectedness that we talked about is so important in prevention efforts. And then three and four sessions are all about role play, where students volunteer to come up and they get the chance to act as a character and to talk about what they would say in that situation where they're concerned about a friend or if they're playing a character who's really stressed or going through something hard, how they can talk about that. And then session five is sort of the wrap up that goes through what that particular cohort of students discussed. It's a chance to address any stigma that came up, to talk about the resources they receive a booklet as part of the program. And uh, yeah, so that's the program. It's very interactive and it's delivered by certified YAM instructors who go into the classroom to do the program. And this interactive part is really where we go focused on so t you know as you know just telling a teen don't commit suicide go for help take care of your mental health take care of your diet and take care of your school is not enough right. is why these things happen so what tell us a little bit about how you our experience with the kids has been in terms of their hands-on experience this is more to teach them how to learn to use these tools rather than just tell them what these are. Right. Right. We don't we don't tell them that there's some formula for asking for help. We literally get them up to the front of the room and have them act it out. So in session three, they sort of brainstorm different stressors that kids their age have been going through. One that's pretty common is um, fighting with parents. And so they'll brainstorm the scenario. A couple of kids will come up and then one student will will play a, a teen. Another student might play the parent, and they'll just act out what that's like. And um, then we may have another student come up to play the friend of the teen and have the teen talk to that student. And um, it always amazes me, like some of the more sort of vocal, gregarious kids that volunteer to run up, and they're like, oh, I can do this. I know what I'm going to say. I'm a great actor. They get up there, and the minute it turns serious, it's a little bit harder, and, and they're not sure what to say. I know that there so, are teachers who are probably listening and thinking, there's no way my students will act this out and participate. So what have you what have you seen? Yeah, um, you are a skeptic, it sounds like. And I was too when I first trained in this program. I will say the kids love it. I mean, I you know, it, it takes that first 
all of us when we're asked to do something new we're a little shy at the beginning right but then once you get one or two students to kind of take the plunge and demonstrate it really becomes a nice setup for again having these conversations practicing having these conversations but in the safety of playing a character right and we have kids who we did this for the ninth grade and next year we were doing the program in their school and they come back in their tenth grade and want to do it again yep <laughs> so I, I think but and and so I think the the skepticism while correct uh, the one key issue that I think uh, you can mention more detail about and that is this program is not delivered by the school the classroom teacher right this is some but some adult that is different from the classroom teacher to address your question Catherine so we don't find the skepticism and and, and I maybe so we even sorry to put you on the spot Jenny but can do any anecdotes come to mind about how this really materialized in a classroom a teen really getting the picture about what we are trying to do? Yeah, I, I mean, one that I can share was an experience I had when I was in the classroom as a YAM instructor. Uh, we In session four, the role plays are all related to helping a friend with depression and helping a friend that's maybe talking about suicide. And so those role plays do tend to take a little bit more of a serious turn, but by then they've kind of practiced and understand the concept. So in one of the classrooms where I was facilitating, they played out um, this teen really struggling, um, not feeling so well dropping out of basketball and in the scene the coach quote unquote the student playing the coach came in and was really trying to talk to the teen and understand what was going on with them and so it was a really well done role play on the students part and after class one of the students in that classroom came up to me and said you know after watching that today it really made me think about how I felt lately and I think I might have depression. And so that was a great opportunity for me to make sure she saw that part of her booklet where she could read a little bit more about it. She and I chatted about what she could do next. And um, she made a plan to go home and talk to her mom about it, but also she wanted me to get her connected to the school counselor. So I just walked her down the hallway. She got the introduction to the school counselor. And when I came back the following week for session five, she came up after class and, and just really thanked me for sort of walking her through that. And she had met with the school counselor twice since that last time that we'd been at the school and really was finding it to be helpful. And the school counselor had supported her in talking to her mom about how she was feeling and her mom was getting her an appointment with her therapist. And so I think that's an example of how this program can really help the students take a look at themselves and reach out and get some help if they need it, whether it's to us as the YAM instructors or to the people in their school. And we'd actually prefer to connect them to the people in their school that can help them who are there longer term. And we have, we did this over 30 schools for three over three years for about 14,000, 15,000 students. Yeah. And now, in order to be able to al al allow this to happen in many more schools, we've changed the model to train the trainer model. So can you speak a little more about how we are really implementing the train the trainer model now? Yes, so this is sort of an exciting new phase of this work. And uh, through the process of being a YAM instructor myself, I was able to train to become a YAM trainer and um, have had the opportunity since to do trainings really around the world. I've, I've assisted with trainings in Australia, India, and then other places in the US like Montana. And so now we are in a situation where we have a team of trainers in the US who can train instructors and that can really increase our footprint. And so at this point, we have the CDRC Training Academy where we are inviting 
members of the schools and communities to, to send adults to be trained as EM instructors. And so we train about 20 people at a time, and the training is four and a half days, and it really sort of mirrors the process that the students go through in the classroom. So we mix a little bit of didactic with a lot of role play. Um, Catherine can actually speak to this. She's gone yes, through the training. I did EM training in June. Yeah. And what I loved about it was that the scaffolding of it. You're going through the training and also learning things kind of at the same level as the students would be. And you also see education professionals who are teachers or have a role to play in the school district administration or people who have no background in mental health whatsoever. It might not even be working in schools, but they are passionate about youth mental health interventions. And everyone was, even the skeptics, everyone came together towards the end. And I think the scaffolding of the program really hit the message home that teens will be involved in this and that it is collaborative and that sense of autonomy that it gives a person of youth is incredible. But the goal and the hope that at least the center has is that we will be doing a training academy that will train YAM instructors across the state so that no school and no child in this state should not be exposed to this. And the state has expressed its support of YAM. What are its thoughts on it? Yeah, so this past year we were listed on the TEA website as recommended interventions. And to Dr. Trevetti's point, you know, we definitely are training some YAM instructors here locally. Once instructors get in the classroom, we start to see who's really great at this program and, and who perhaps could be a champion for the program. And those are the folks that we want to consider to become trainers like I am. And so our hope is that as we train more and more instructors, we start to see the people that have potential to become EM trainers. And then we increase our number of trainers across the state. And that way, the CDRC Training Academy can serve as a hub. And we can then have groups of trainers throughout Texas who can be training instructors in their local communities and school districts so that this program just really can have an extended reach across the state of Texas. And if a listener is interested in attending YAM training or train the facilitator, which I highly recommend, what would they do? How would they contact you guys? So they could go to the CDRC's website and there's information there about how to contact and find out when we're doing our next YAM training. Uh, they can get on our wait list and go from there. And I, I think that this uh, uh, Stepping back, I think as a physician, I have to say that we are only bringing mental health into the realm of what we do in medical illness all the time. We do not wait for somebody to have a heart attack before we find out they have a hypertension. We don't wait somebody to have a gangrene to say, oh, maybe you have diabetes. We in mental health have always unfortunately ended up where we only focus on crises and somebody is attempt suicide and say, maybe there's something wrong. And our approach is really much earlier so that we never have to have a person go through this suffering to get to that point of suicide. So that's sort of the idea behind it. One final point on this, uh, Jenny, and that is a little different from just YAM, and that is why don't we get routine screening for depression and suicide in schools? Do you want to discuss that a little? Because we don't, and yeah. there is a whole lot of hesitation there is all the myths about if you ask them, they'll start thinking about it, which is totally wrong. But still, can you give us some thoughts on, A, why people don't screen routinely and what do we need to do to get there? Yeah. 
The common concerns that I hear from our school partners range from the one you just mentioned. If we ask about suicide, might that somehow plant the idea in someone's head? And we know from research. And as a parent, I have to confess yeah. that if I had that much power over my kids, I would love it. But <laughs> you that would be does planting lots of ha- things. That yeah, doesn't I understand. happen. So. <laughs> right. Well, and Maddie Gold did research years back to show that that doesn't happen. So we, we know that asking about suicide does not cause the problem of suicide. And we should pause. I think this is really important. That is something that everybody thinks about, but that doesn't happen. Right. That, mm-hmm. So that's one concern mentioned. Other concerns that are brought up are, are one, just the time it takes to screen. You know, schools have a lot of things they're trying to do every single year, and so there's sometimes concerns about giving up classroom time to do screening. There's also the big concern of if someone screens positive, what do you do? Some of our schools have really great school-based mental health services or really great connections to organizations in the community. And I can't but some help don't. you to interrupt you by saying that that is just the wrong model. We never ask that question about somebody who has asthma or diabetes. Yeah. Say, what if we find out they have it, what do we do? We yeah. figure out a way to solve it. And I think with mental health, we have to get there. Oh, I completely agree. And, you know, we have some other projects through the CDRC where we're working with schools to do screening and figure out how to make those sort of pipelines to care so that our youth can be identified early and we can help them. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I can't wait to see how the CDRC implements school-based interventions. It sounds like EM has a lot of traction and I can't wait to see where it goes and the research that we're doing. So that is it for this episode of Brainstorm Decoding Depression with your host from the Center for Depression Research and Clinical Care. Be sure to follow us on social media at UTSW underscore CDRC so you don't miss our episode announcements. If you have suggestions for topics or questions you'd like answered, we have a new email address just for this podcast, decodingdepressionpodcast at utsouthwestern.edu. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.